or maybe England. I had a friend from England who said to me once, you call it Independence Day, we call it Insurrection Day. (laughs) One of the things I love about fullness is that they always have had this focus on the international scope of the gospel. You'll notice that there's not an American flag here on the podium. But if you look behind you, up by the balcony, there are flags from many countries, including the United States. Because at fullness, we've always believed that the gospel is for all people from every nation. That said, I think it doesn't preclude us from addressing our times in our nation. So by your grace, I'd like to say a few words about this country today. Today is July the 3rd, which marked the turning point for the American Civil War, when General Meade defeated General Lee in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania in 1863. Now, I know you're saying, this guy was born a Yankee, and he's speaking in a southern church just 90 miles down the road from the initial capital of the Confederacy, and that Alabama was one of the first seven states that seceded from the Union prior to Abraham Lincoln's inauguration and the taking of Fort Sumter. We were a house divided. And for some, those echoes still resonate. But it seems to me that Abraham Lincoln was an unusual president, able to speak into a tumultuous time. So I'd like to share just a few words that he gave at Gettysburg. This photograph was taken, let's see if I can get it to change here. It's thinking, there it is. This photograph was taken just moments before Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. It was November 19th, 1865. He was dedicating the Soldiers National Cemetery because of the 23,000 49 Union soldiers who gave their lives in that three-day battle. The arrow kind of points to him, if you can see it. And he said, fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who gave their lives here so that that nation 
might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a greater sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have already consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be dedicated here to the unfinished task which lays before us. That from these honored dead, we gain increased devotion to the cause for which they gave the last full measure of their devotion. That we here highly resolve that these men who died have not died in vain. And that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. What are the forces that form someone like Abraham Lincoln to be able to speak like that? To be able to look at his times and, and address it in a way that's meaningful? It doesn't magically occur out of a vacuum. This morning's passage is going to discuss one of the ways in which God forms the character of leaders. It will be hard and harder. The United States under Abraham Lincoln had over 400 million slaves at the time that he was elected president. Likewise, did I say 400 million? I meant 4 million. 4 million slaves. Likewise, under Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon had thousands of slaves that they had acquired, not because of the color of their skin, but because they had conquered nations in Assyria and then down through Israel and further down into Egypt. For those people, there are a lot of similarities. They had been forcefully taken out of their land by a more powerful people. Often they had their names changed. They were brought to another land where they were supposed to do service for their new masters. Their culture was run over, and they were treated like chattel, property. 
So they longed to hear somebody speak to their difficult situation. They felt like they were lost in the stars and God was nowhere to be found. So God decided to work powerfully in the life of Nebuchadnezzar and for the sake of the exiles so that they knew he was still there. The book of Daniel, especially chapter 4, is not told in chronological or even logical, you know, cause and effect order. Instead, uh, it's rearranged. It's kind of like watching uh, the new series 18, what is it, 1883, where they have this scene of the main actress in that series, Elsa Dutton, early on, the very first episode. And it doesn't happen until much later in the account. But they put it here because this is a significant outcome for a major character. Likewise, in the book of Daniel in chapter 4, if I were to give letters to the parts of chapter 4, I'd call them A, B, C, and D. But when the story is told, the order isn't that order. Instead, the story is told D, A, B, C, and D. And D has to do with the proclamation from Nebuchadnezzar, who is a significant character. And there is an outcome for him that Daniel wants us to see early on in the narrative. And then he'll tell us the story, which has to do with the king's dream, Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream, the king's experience, and finally, the king's restoration. But first of all, we're told about this proclamation in Daniel chapter 4, picking up in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live, all, live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. This edict that goes out really is from a king over many nations. And you know, an edict can, can be good or it can be bad. It's kind of like, in our experience, a Supreme Court decision. Everybody pays attention when the edict comes out. And so this edict is particularly good. He says, let peace abound. Oh, peace is great. All of those who are in this kingdom would want to know about that peace. And then he gives the basis of it. And the basis is that there is a most high God whose dominion is everlasting. That's an odd thing for a sovereign to say. It means that he understands that there is somebody over him and that's going to regulate what he does. And that'll bring peace to people. You know how it is. So often when we are uh, on our own and we don't have anyone that seems to be over us, we tend to act in excess. And it can be detrimental to other people. Way back in ancient history, I was the founding pastor of the chapel in University Park. 
The chapel on University Park was actually a plant from a larger church called the chapel. I was, a, I was the pastor of the chapel in North Canton, and the chapel in University Park was the source of that. And the chapel in University Park is where I went when I first became a believer in college. It was a big church, and they sent me off to seminary. And then in the middle of seminary, I came back and did a summer internship. And then I went back to seminary for a couple more years. And then after that, I came back to the chapel and did a residency for a year. And from that residency, we planted the chapel in North Canton. Now, after we had this kind of experience, the chapel in North Canton was a whole different experience. We met in a YMCA. And then the office space I shared with two other people in the church who were insurance agents. I just had one room in the hallway. But we had a lot of great volunteers, even though it felt like a one-man show. One day, it was late in the day, and uh, I was sitting in my office, and the phone rang. And I thought, well, the only person who's going to call me is somebody who knows me. And I remember that when I was in a band, there was somebody in the band who always answered the phone by saying, what? I was tired. It was late. We didn't have caller ID back in the day. So I picked up the receiver and said, what? And it was David Burnham who was the pastor of the chapel in University Park. The man that I most highly admired on the planet. And I was so humiliated. I thought, I never would have answered the phone with what if I knew he was the one on the other end of the phone. Knowing that someone else that you think highly of is watching or aware of what you're doing actually will have an impact on what you do. So it is that Nebuchadnezzar says, I realize that there's someone whose realm is everlasting above me. And that brings peace for those under his influence. Then the narrative begins with his telling of his dream. It picks up in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O oh, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with all of its interpretations. We all know what it's like to have a dream that really upsets us. And unless you have a counselor who can kind of parse out that dream, all we can do is walk with it until 
it wears off. Not so for Nebuchadnezzar. He has counselors. He has wise men. So he calls them all in. And one in particular is brought in. His name is Daniel, which of course in Hebrew means God, Elohim, God is judge. But he changed his name to Belshazzar, which meant Bel watches over life. Whatever you think about Daniel in this position, the narrator has made it abundantly clear that even though he's the chief of the magicians, he's a slave. So then, Daniel, the dream is given to us. He says, Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. And behold, a watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. And leave the stump with its roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. I mean, already we're going to be given a hint of the interpretation because of all these impersonal pronouns that have been used. It, 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 it. But in the second part of verse 15, he says, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the grass of the earth and let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him This sentence is by the decree of the watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. Daniel's going to interpret the dream, so I'll leave that to him. But he has a couple things that he doesn't talk about. One has to do with the watchers. In the intertestamental period, there are these books that describe angels as watchers. Those that look upon the earth and guard the earth, they watch all that's happening. They don't have to communicate to God because God knows all this, but they implement what he says to do these watchers. One other thing I'd like to mention is this little statement that occurs in verse 17 where he says, 
in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. It seems to be the purpose of the dream. This would be meaningful if you were a captive slave in Babylon who felt like God was gone. This would be meaningful if you were a slave during the Civil War in the United States. This might even be meaningful if you're a resident of the United States and Donald Trump or President Biden are ruling in the nation. What he's saying is God has sovereignly determined who is going to be over the nation and there are watchers paying attention. Now we were given Daniel's interpretation of the dream. It picks up in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, he's not letting us forget this. Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Now, that's an interesting thing for someone who is a slave who's had his name changed to say. This might be the perfect powerful moment. In the United States... And it's understandable, but in the United States, our pattern is uh, we just we change our last name because we don't like who our slave owners were. <coughs> Excuse me. So it became Malcolm X or Cassius X before he became Muhammad Ali. I understand. But that doesn't seem to be the way that Daniel is thinking. So there must be something that's influencing Daniel. I mean Belshazzar. And I think that something comes to us from Jeremiah. Perhaps Daniel has received this letter from Jeremiah chapter 29, which says, beginning in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, that's the God of armies, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Sounds applicable. Let me read what's in the ellipsis. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease 
and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. And you know, the, the exiles were thinking, okay, we were taken out of Israel up into Babylon, but we're going back, and it's going to be okay. We're going to set up our homes, and everything's going to be just fine there. And then Jeremiah writes this. He said, what, we're supposed to build houses? That's going to take some time. We're supposed to have children and then marry our children off and they're supposed to have... We're supposed to pray for the welfare of our captors? Are you kidding? You know, the hard part here is can we walk with God where we are instead of where we wish we were. Can we provide for the welfare of the people that we've been exiled to? Or are we only angry because our expectations have been foiled? Expectations can destroy our lives. When I lived in Ohio, I, I had a running loop around our house. It was five miles. And I would get up at 5 a.m. and I would do that five-mile loop before I went to work. And inevitably, when I got to one part of the road, there would be traffic in two directions. So I would be on the side, have to get off the road, and then a car would be coming this way, and a car would be coming that way. There was no room for me on the road, and it was so frustrating. I think, so what are the chances that all of us are going to wake up, get dressed, and show up at this spot at 5.10 in the morning? Well, as I kept running the loop, I decided the chances must be pretty good because we do it every morning. And all of a sudden, I was okay with it. I kind of laughed when it would happen because my expectations had been adjusted. It appears that Daniel has adjusted his expectations. He cares about Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, that this would happen to your enemies and not you. I'll tell you, we will never be able to love and fully embrace the imperfect life that is ours until we come to believe that God is present right where we are. So Daniel interprets the dream. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt, 
and in their branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky in your dominion to the end of the earth. And in that the king saw a watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots and in the ground with the band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time have passed. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree from the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king, that you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven for seven periods of time, which will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the root of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, he's bold here, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. He's speaking truth to power, and then he dares to advise him. Do righteousness, he says. Give mercy to the poor. Who are the poor? No one is poorer in the kingdom than the slaves in the kingdom. And maybe God will forestall this. I remember seeing on Facebook this question. If you could say something to your younger self, what would you say? I can think of a lot of things that I would say. Like, David, do you know who you are? Or, David, you need to find someone who can help you deal with all of your emotions. Or, David, you might want to talk to someone about your view of reality because it's not quite accurate. But the problem is, would I listen? And that's the problem for Nebuchadnezzar. He has been told, if you do this, you will forestall this. 
but instead we have the king's experience. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? This picture uh, really is about Daniel chapter 2, which uh, I think Scott preached to us. But I love the, the throne because it has these winged bulls on the throne. When Lynn and I were in London, we were walking through a museum, and all of a sudden, there they were, the winged bulls from Assyria that Babylon had taken over. And I think this is what Nebuchadnezzar was looking at. My Babylon, my great Babylon. I mean, I mean, look at the picture on your right. I'll get out of the way. There are five legs on that bull because it's meant to look like he's walking. It was pretty magnificent art for the time. And Nebuchadnezzar's looking at that and he's saying, isn't this wonderful? And he uses all those first-person pronouns. My kingdom, which I have built for my glory. And sovereignty is taken away from him. And everything that was foretold becomes the king's experience. It then picks up with his deliverance. Verse 34, and Gabriel will talk about this in depth next week. But at the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And now listen, these words that he says are the very words that show up in his decree in verses 1 through 3. For his dominion is ever an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And so no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? This picture comes from Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. Abraham Lincoln, who grew up working his dad's farm, he never had anything in terms of formal education. He had to borrow every book or purchase it by working for it. He had to teach himself math and grammar and oration, and then when he wanted to become a lawyer, he had to teach himself law. He couldn't go to law school. Abraham Lincoln, whose mother died when he was young, and he was raised by a stepmother whom he loved and loved him, 
Abraham Lincoln, who the first woman of his life that he truly loved, lost her from illness, and then he was despondent for a very long time. Abraham Lincoln, who married Mary Todd, who herself brought emotional issues to the marriage. Abraham and Mary Todd lost three of their four sons during their lifetime. And one of them was while he was president of the United States. Now he speaks really five weeks before he's assassinated as the commander-in-chief of the Union forces. Atlanta has been taken. Sherman has marched to the sea. And he's now coming to fight with Grant against Lee in Virginia. You would expect rancor from him. You would expect positioning. But in this address, he is very humble. Actually, words from this address come from a note that he wrote to himself years before and put in his desktop drawer called God and the Civil War. Just a memo. Let me close with these words. Talking about both sides. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. It might seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of another man's faces, but let us judge not that we not be judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. And then he quotes, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man to whom the offense cometh. End of quote. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom this offense came, Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly we do hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war speedily pass away. Yet... If God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash 
shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So, who's in charge? Who's in charge of Babylon? Who's in charge of Ethiopia? Who's in charge of the United States of America? Who's in charge of my life? Who's in charge of your life? Let's pray. Please stand. Now to him who was able to make us stand with great joy in his presence, to the only God of our salvation, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all time, this day in space and time, and forevermore be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning and happy fourth. You're dismissed. <laughs>